Hello, boys and girls. <laughs> How you doing? All right, we're continuing our um, study, look back on the uh, history of the church. Why do we do this? Uh, something we've never done before, but it's just kind of a good foundation to understand who we are and why we do what we do. A lot of it has to do with what happened over the church history uh, for some, quite some time. Uh, so we start, first thing we mentioned here is the book of Revelation was written about the year 95. Uh, and then the first 300 years of Christianity is kind of like the coveted part that everybody wants to be able to trace back their thinking to what they call the patristic period. These patristic standing for fathers. This is the fathers of the church. These are guys who either were apostles, were ordained by an apostle, ordained by a guy who was ordained by an apostle. These guys had really strong connections to what started all of this. So all of this has a great deal. Everybody wants to take whatever their argument, if you read whatever church you come up with, they all try to trace everything back there. Uh, but there's not a whole lot they can trace back there. One of the greatest, strongest uh, descriptions of what the church was like was written about 75 years after uh, Revelation, a guy by the name of Justin Martyr. And he literally writes out what it was like to go to church back then. And... Uh, it's funny when you read history, uh, because everybody's got their twist on stuff, right? If you read Catholic history or Eastern Orthodox history, they all go back and say, Justin Martyr is proof of, of the Mass. Now, if you've ever been to a Mass, you know what a Mass is. Uh, but if you actually read it, it does no such thing. It actually is the greatest argument for Protestant worship. <laughs> I mean, what it says, what we, do, what we did is we'd gather together, we'd sing some songs, we would pray, read some of the writings of the apostles, someone would go up and speak about what they had written from the scriptures, like a pastor today, they'd take an offering, uh, they'd take communion together. No record of candles, altar boys, any of the trappings of, oh, you know, of what they would call uh, a... a a mass, or they would say, uh, arg argument for the, uh, uh, what's the word? Nope, 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 nope. Liturgy. Ooh, get up to Becky there. Uh, there was no liturgy. There's nobody repeating all this call in the back. Not that we're against all that stuff. It's just, it wasn't there. What we read there is what you see pretty much in any church anywhere in the world. Uh, Anyone who's into the mass could say, well, they had communion and someone pre... Okay, yeah, but everybody does that. There is not this big connection. Uh, this is where we see the Apostles' Creed. You know what we can stick in here with the Apostles' Creed right there? Is the sign of the cross. Where's your little marker, Vanna? There we go. Right in there, the sign of the cross. That's something you say, well, that's a Catholic... Catholics still do it. Some Orthodox churches do it. A lot of churches actually do it, but it is not something that's Roman Catholic. This is something that goes back during this 300-year period. The earliest of Christians would pray, and a lot of them would do the sign of the cross, just a way of honoring God, blessing themselves, uh, you know, pointing to Christ. Uh, actually, there's a fair amount of people, you can't see it because you can't see what we see, but there's a lot of people that in a service will pray, We'll do the Lord's Prayer, and then I'll sit in a whole bunch of people that do this as they sit, which is fine by us. You know, there's, there's nothing wrong with it. Uh, I think it's kind of cool, actually. 
uh, people freak out because we're Protestants and Protestants panic about anything that's connected to Catholicism. You know. So anyway, just check your medication. It'll be fine. Okay, no one's going crazy here. But this is the only thing that tra- uh, goes back to the patristic period that most Protestants are uncomfortable with is the baptism of infants. Uh, there's no place in the New Testament that talks about such things, um, but they can. And there's Protestant churches, uh, older line Protestant churches that still baptize infants, and you can give them all the arguments why we don't do it. And they'll go, yeah, we see that, but they did it way back then. Hard to argue with, you know. I, we just disagree. I think it's the one thing they did they probably shouldn't have done. Uh, people argue, say, well, it's, it's the Christian form of circumcision. Well, that's problematic on two fronts. Number one, circumcision had nothing to do with women. Women weren't even included in the whole deal. So what's their special thing, right? And the other thing that's very odd about that is that so much of the New Testament, Paul spends time condemning circumcision. <laughs> it doesn't mean anything. There's no value to it at all, is what he's saying. So why would the church do something that has no value and bring it into Christianity? I don't know, but they are into it. And uh, you're not going to convince many people otherwise. Uh, we teach what we teach. People will respond accordingly. Uh, but that's about the only thing. So this is a big thing for us. But there's other things that they've done throughout the years that we look at and go, okay, this tradition. Tradition. Now, there's a lot of people, uh, I've heard actually pastors, uh, you know, who are really into tradition, they say tradition is on the same uh, footing as scripture. Scripture and tradition are equal ground. And no, they're not. Uh, it's nice to have your traditions, but the scripture stands alone. It has, that's the final say, that which is what, what makes us evangelicals. Evangelical, we don't buy into traditions the same, but there are some things that tradition has done that are good. For example, they started celebrating Christmas at the year 400. Nothing in the Bible says celebrate Christmas. You could argue in some Crazy evangelicals <laughs> scream about Christmas every year. We're not supposed to do that. You know, because they think it's some pagan ritual or whatever. Now, we're celebrating the birth of Christ. It's not in the Bible. Correct. It's not in the Bible, but it is a Christian tradition, and it's certainly in line with the scriptures. Uh, in fact, we're taking the scriptures and celebrating what happened at the birth of Christ. Um, even uh, Easter. Where did Easter pop up? Well, that's back, ooh, back in 200. I guess that was an early one. So that's, but even still, it's not in the Bible. No one says to celebrate Easter, that kind of thing. Uh, the uh, Lenten period that we just did, uh, not in the scriptures, but consistent with scriptures. Confessing sin, turning away from sin, being sober, uh, and leading up to celebrating Easter. So there's all kinds of traditional things that have been done. They're still good to do. It doesn't make us Roman Catholic. It does not. Uh, it's not what that is about, okay? It's all based on... You don't even see the formation of Roman Catholicism until about the year 600. And even then, it's just the beginnings. A lot of people say um, Roman Catholicism didn't actually come into play until about the year 1000. In the year 1054, there was called the Great Schism. This is where the church was just one church. And you had people in the East and the West and everything else. Well, here is when the Eastern Christians broke away from the Western Christians, the Roman Christians, uh, and that is the official Roman Catholic Church at that point. And now there's just not one big church over everything. Everybody still thinks they're the one big church. If you ask them, 
we're the true ones, you know, because they can trace everything back. Well, everybody can trace everything back. But uh, uh, anyway, it's real interesting. Um, so this is what happens. Now, um, what really gets interesting, if, right, the year 1000 there to 1300, down there, 1000 to 1300. Can you do a kind of a bracket here? All right, there we go. Okay, this is where things get crazy and really spiral out of control. Uh, and before I get into it, I just want to say this is not a slam on Roman Catholics. We don't slam Roman Catholics. We don't hate them. I don't think they hate us. We just don't agree. But they will admit they've got some bad historical problems. And when they talk about their bad historical problems, they're all talking about here. This is when all this is when the Crusades happen. And they're running around uh, <laughs> killing all kinds of people in the name of Jesus, you know, and uh, fighting and stuff. The, the greatest uh, tragedy of it all is what's called the sack of Constantinople. What happens? You've got Rome and then you've got the Eastern churches in Constantinople. Well, they attack Constantinople and it's Christians killing Christians. I mean, Jesus tells us what? We're supposed to love one another so that the world can know that we're my disciples, right? Love one another. Here they're kill killing e each other. And apparently, historically, if you read it, uh, the Roman crusaders are brutal and they just did horrible things that you can't even get your head around. It is an embarrassment. It's a horrible, terrible thing. Eventually, in 2001, the uh, Pope of the Roman Catholic Church apologized for it. Don't want to rush anything. You know, let a good, you know, a thousand years go by before we kind of straighten things out. But uh, <laughs> so uh, they finally admitted this was a bad thing that we did. All right. But now we, we've got uh, indulgences pop up. These are people that are paying money for forgiveness of sins. And the Roman church starts selling these. This is what they did to uh, generate money for the Crusades and for the building of St. Peter's Basilica. I don't know if anybody ever been to St. Peter's. It is, it is something else. I mean, you ever get a chance to go? It is stunning. It is some of the greatest artwork in the history of mankind all during this period. And they outdo it at the Vatican. You, it is really mind-blowing. Uh, you ever get a chance to go? You ought to go. But anyway, all this is done through a horrible thing. Uh, they're basically selling forgiveness, which is a terrible thing. Uh, this is when you get all kinds of weird things that start popping up. Uh, um, I have a list here. And again, this isn't trying to attack anybody. It's just the reality of it. This is when all of a sudden um, you get the idea of purgatory, which is just, I don't know where they get this from. And again, it sounds mean to the Catholics. I'm not trying to be mean. It says there's no scriptural basis for it at all. There is no purgatory. You don't go to a kind of a hell to work off your sins before you go to heaven. You get your sins forgiven up front. See, up to this point, salvation is done by faith, trust and hope in Christ. Well, by the time you get here, uh, this is when they in introduce, a, you can scribble it somewhere, a confession that you got to confess your sins to a priest to have your sins forgiven. That did not exist here. Now, they can trace it back, some of them, a few hundred years, one way or the other. Well, they started doing this at this place, but it didn't become official to here. Um, we don't do that. Um, the idea of penance, again, is in full bore. You get to the year 1000. So what is happening now? Rather than just trusting God for forgiveness of sins, 
we now have, uh, or you have to confess your sins. You have to do penance for your sins. If you can't keep up with all, you can pay for your sins. And the ultimate thing is, at some point, you'll go to a mini hell and burn off your sins. This is out of control. This is, now they still hang on to a great many of these things. They are just wrong. I don't know what else to tell you. you know, if you're Catholic, God bless you, God here. But uh, it's just, there's no foundation scripturally uh, at all. Um, so what happens? It creates this great tension. And then uh, it's leading to the great reformation. And we could spend forever talking about the reformation. See how far I get tonight. Uh, we always have the fall. If the Catholics can wait a thousand years to apologize. I can spend a few months going through this stuff. All right. So, um, uh, so this, you can see how it has gone off the rails. It's not about what it was supposed to be. And quite frankly, a lot of people to this day, despite their intentions, are just off the rails scripturally, and they're not even aware of it. Then something happens uh, about, uh, well, not about to give you the exact date, 1455, you can stick that over there on our next line. Uh, this is the printing press. The printing press changes the world. It is a dramatic change in history. The very first book printed on the printing press was the Bible. It was the Gutenberg Bible, which was in Latin. You say, well, Latin, who can read Latin? A lot of educated people could read Latin at that time. Uh, we were talking about this earlier today. I mean, People can barely speak English in our country. Oh, it's just awful. Uh, the dumbing down of the English language and of the educational system is stunning. Uh, why it's bad and why so many people push it is because if people don't know, they'll believe anything. So they got forces in our country that are taking, trying to take the country in a whole other direction. People don't even know because they can't read very well. Uh, man, all you got to do is post something on Facebook and see how many people react to something that you agree with. You said, la, la, la. Well, you shouldn't say it because I'm, that's what I said. They don't know how to read. I'm not exaggerating. They don't know how to read or they can literally put the words together, but they can't comprehend what they're reading. Part of reading is reading comprehension. As a teacher, right? You got to have, it's not just enough to sound out the words. Do you understand what they just said? Well, I have, we got people today who can't even sound out the words hardly. They certainly can't comprehend and they can't remember what they read. And it's just a disaster particularly in the public school system. Now, the private school system has fought against it and doing a much better job educating children. And I'm not against public teachers or anything, but the system, it's just broken. How do you not look at this mess and say it's not broken? It's just broken. Uh, the average American's vocabulary, even 150 years ago, was about 50,000 words. You, you want to read letters during the Civil War that people write to each other? The mastery of the language is stunning. It's like poetry. It's these people who graduated at sixth grade. And man, can they write. Boy, can they use words. Today, the average American's vocabulary is 5,000 words. And if you can't find the right, right emoji, nobody knows what you're talking about. We're going to wind up like cavemen. Hug, 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 animal, animal. It's gotten bad. It's just, anyway, people from a literary and language perspective we're much more in tune. Actually, it's true in this, I mean, Africa. You go to Africa, it's not unusual to find people who live in cardboard shacks in Africa who are fluent in five languages, right? I mean, it's everywhere. 
we can barely be fluent in one. It's just so people were pretty educated on language back then. And a lot of people did have the ability to read and understand Latin. So, uh, but not all of them, but enough. So what happens is the Bible gets printed and people are starting to look at this and look at the Bible going, wait a minute. Wait a minute, that's, that's not right. That's not what it says. Uh, and it starts to build pressure, okay? So then we get to the year uh, 1517, and a little Catholic monk by the name of Martin Luther comes along. And uh, he sees this, and uh, he is just struggling with it horribly. He's trying desperately, trying to find God through all of this. The penance, I mean, these guys would whip themselves until their backs bled, trying to pay for their sins. And this is also for the Middle Ages. I mean, he's desperately trying to find God and trying to find peace for sins. And eventually, he's reading the scriptures and it dawns on him, this is by faith. You find Christ, and he becomes a born-again Christian at this point. It transforms his life. And then he starts going off on all of this. Luther did not intend to break away from the Catholic Church. He wanted to reform it. And we see that a lot with some of these churches as we go through the history of all of this. Uh, but uh, you can imagine the stir it caused. His famous thing is where he na nails his thesis on the Wittenberg door and starts saying, you know, this is, this is crazy what we're doing. This is especially the indulgences. Boy, was he angry at that. And he starts going after all of that. And then... Uh, he uh, writes, he takes the Bible and translates it, translates it into German because Luther was from Germany. And, uh, now he, and, it's, and now everybody can read and understand, not just those who also spoke multiple languages and understand Latin. Well, this is a problem. This is a problem for the Roman Catholic Church because now all these people are looking at what the scripture says and what this is saying to them. And they're saying, this is not right. And they start fighting against it and kicking against it. Uh, now, Luther, if you ever want an entertaining read, read about Luther. He was a smart aleck. He had a wicked sense of humor. He had quite the potty mouth. Of all the church history people that I look back on, I relate most to Martin and Luther because that's... I'm not nearly as holy as the other guys. Luther, I go, yeah, that's kind of me. I can see that, you know. I mean, but he was really a potty mouth. And I mean, but you have to understand, in those days, it wasn't a potty mouth. You can't, up for the first 1,500 years of Christianity, well, at least 12, 1,300 years of Christianity, nobody cared about words like excrement or some of the, you know, ass or whatever, these different things. Nobody cared about any of that. What they considered cursing was using God's name in vain. Right? That's cursing. So I'm saying, oh, I'm sick of this crap. You're cursing. No, you're a moron. Okay? That's not cursing. Say, well, that's, you know, Bible says you shouldn't say anything that's uh, not fit for building people up. And then they become the judges of what that is. You know, they're just modern day Pharisees as far as I'm concerned. Anyway, because uh, <laughs> some of these guys, you, you would not let Martin Luther in your church today. This is the guy. If you worship right now in any church that's not a Catholic church, you can thank one guy, Martin Luther. He had got all of this coming. 
And, uh, and most uh, organizations today, uh, you know, let's pick up focus on the family. Something like that. They would never let him on the radio because <laughs> we're so much holier than that because we have this false sense of holiness of what an evangelical Christian could, is supposed to be like. We fight against this all the time, right? We still believe in the evangelical approach that the scriptures have the final say. Martin Luther was the big one on that. He had a concept called sola scriptura. Uh, you can write that on there. It makes it sound educated. S-O-L-A, sola. You know how to spell it. She's a big girl. All right. All right. That's why she's doing this because she can spell and I can't, despite complaining about ignorance. Sola scriptura, which, which means only the scriptures. That was his argument. If it's not in the Bible, it has no hold on us. So this is what he argued for. And then he translated the Bible into German. Now everybody's reading it. And nobody was ever more skilled at using printed materials than Martin Luther. He would print uh, pamphlets, uh, tracts. He was prolific. When you read about his story, I was reading earlier today about the Gutenberg Press, and I said, but nobody used the press more effectively than Martin Luther. He was proficient. He was a writing machine. Everywhere you would go, you would find tracts and flyers and stuff from Martin Luther. He made a massive argument against all of this. Uh, he was... <laughs> unkind is a, a light way of saying uh, towards the Pope. I can't even repeat. <laughs> well, I could, but I don't want to give you all a heart attack. What things he said about the Pope. I mean, he had had it up to here. He thought they were corrupt. As, oh, by the way, another thing that added here, celibacy. Up until this point, all priests were married. The popes were married. The popes had wives and children until the year 1000, and then uh, something that's good has to be bad, that kind of thinking. So they just go off on the rails. It's all about self-control you know, and beating yourself and working your way to heaven. So celibacy is part of So Martin Luther, one of the first things he does is he marries a nun, <laughs> which is hilarious. And, uh, and of course, you can imagine what that did to the Roman Catholic Church. You know, you made a vow. Luther goes, ah, it's nonsense. Sola Scriptura. He didn't care. So he marries a nun. They got, how many kids did he have? Eight kids or something like that. He was, uh, to this day, and, and really took care of the children. His wife was very strong, educating the children. To this day, one of the greatest Christian uh, organizations for educating children are Lutheran schools. That goes back about 500 years ago. Uh, and started with Luther himself. So anyway, he also, there's a lot of negative things about Luther. You know, <laughs> he did things, he think, what the heck? You know, um, he was really against Jewish people. I mean, he was anti-Semitic on steroids. Uh, Lutherans don't like talking about it because it's an embarrassment to them. Uh, but it's in German, and he wrote against the evils of the Jews. Guess who quoted him earlier uh, last century? Hitler. A lot of, he's quoting Martin Luther. Uh, it's just a shame, and it's horrible. Now, he didn't advocate, I don't think, putting them all in ovens and cooking them to death, but I mean, it, but it, they, they used that thing. 
So he's got some issues. He's got some problems. But I just want to point out, it's not just Luther uh, that made it happen. Luther was the, the valve that it all came out of. What made it happen was the printing press. People started reading the scriptures and even Luther's version of the German scriptures. Now people are seeing is this creates a massive pressure building point against all of this stuff that had just gone off the rails of Christianity. And it came in this weird religious stuff and not about knowing God and about experiencing faith. Luther was the one who this escape valve came through. All right? So um, we've got uh, Luther. Uh, da, 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 da. He did the... He, he, uh, what year was when he wrote his Bible? Oh, 1522 was the German Bible. And then, you can do that, 1522. Next one will be 1530 is uh, Tyndale comes along. So not that many years later, somewhere in, in that period, he writes the first English Bible. Now all the English-speaking people are reading the scriptures for the first time. And it was, this spreads all throughout Europe it creates this thing called the Reformation, where people are now seeing the scriptures and it starts to change everything. Uh, 1529, actually, just I'll squeeze it in, in there. Uh, is, uh, that's when the Church of England formed. Uh, and they were starting to separate from this idea of the Roman uh, Catholic Church. All of this builds massively. Um, and then... Let's talk a little bit about the, uh, what happens in England. England's kind of a th thing. Oh, oh, the other thing that's happening, just a few years different from this, I don't even have the time stamp, but uh, uh, yeah, I do. 1541, John Calvin comes along, and uh, he's a major player in the Reformation. 1541, yes, John Calvin, and that's where you get the word Calvinism, uh, which in the day was a, a fairly big player in the Reformation. Not really big players today in Christianity uh, because I think they're just, they became extreme. Calvin was a little bit of an extremist. These were the people who believe that uh, you didn't just come to God by faith. The reason you came by faith is because you were predestined to come to faith. People are born destined to go to heaven or to hell. God controls everything. God has control over everything. Everything's predestined in its, its most extreme form. Uh, sometimes you can debate, debate with them, and then it just becomes a matter of semantics. You know, well, I chose to accept Christ. The Bible says whoever will. It's, you know, it's free will. Well, yeah, you did, but only because God ordained that you did. You know, um, it kind of, there's people today who still have some of this thinking. I mean, there's still... If you ever see, you ever see the, a church called a Reformed Church, such and such Reformed Church, you're like, what does that mean? Reformed from what? This is what they call themselves breaking away at that time uh, in the, during the Reformation. So that was their thing. Uh, there's still different churches that are, have the stamp on them. Some are very intense. Uh, Presbyterians are real strong you know, on the Calvinist scale. Uh, some Baptist churches are still kind of on that some of this stuff got carried through for quite a while. Some, I mean, obviously, even t t today. Uh, I mean, <laughs> I know of a man 
who committed adultery and got mad at God. Why? Why would God let me commit adultery? No, you nitwit. That's not how this works. You committed adultery. Because they think God controls everything, right? Everything. Uh, you hear this, everyone. If something goes bad, suddenly everyone in the world becomes a Calvinist. Especially all the unbelievers. If there's a God, why did he let that happen? Why did God let that plane crash and kill those people? Well, God had nothing to do with it. Somebody ran out of fuel or something broke. I mean, stuff happens, right? It's just accidents happen. Not everything is, why did I kill my grandson on that motorcycle? God didn't kill him. Or you hear this stuff, right? It's because they think all of a sudden they all become Calvinistic and they think God controls everything. If God controlled everything, do you think this world would look like this? For heaven's sakes. It doesn't work that way. We have free will, regardless of those who think we don't. But anyway, so Calvin, Calvinist is still present in Christianity. It's not as big of a player. But all this happens here. This is the Reformation. And it starts taking the world in a totally different direction. So anyway, the Church of England, we see, gets started about 1529. And uh, um, uh, history says, there was a, they had a king at the time, Henry VIII. Um, Henry VIII, I am. Okay, so anyway, Henry VIII was a little nuts, I gotta tell you. Uh, and he had all these different wives and the way he'd move on to a new wife is he'd cut off the head of the previous one. <laughs> Little extreme. <laughs> but anyway, he was married to this woman uh, and he didn't want to be married to her anymore, uh, Catherine of Aragon, and wanted to marry, or say, one of the Bolin sisters, whatever, historically, you can look at it. Anyway, and this is when he breaks away from the Roman Catholic Church because he wanted to get uh, an annulment or divorce from this woman so he could marry the other woman. The Pope said no. The king said, all right, then we're starting our own church. We're breaking away. That's what history says. It's kind of true, but it's not really 100% true. All of this stuff has been building about breaking away from the church in the first place. All this is building big time. And Tyndale, who was a major player during this time, uh, wrote a piece uh, about that he believed that kings... In every country, the king of every country should be the head of the church in that country. That was his argument, Tyndale, uh, which he wrote. Uh, you don't have to write this one down, but it's, uh, I think, 1528, right around that time. Eh, you don't have to worry about it. Uh, 1520. So he gets this idea of, of this. So what happens is uh, in 1534, uh, the king of England, Henry VIII, adopts that idea finally. What was the straw that broke the camel's back was probably that he had to go to the Pope, pope to get permission to get divorced. But that's not what, they didn't create a whole church so one guy could get rid of a chick, all right? That's not what happened. This had been building. They're breaking away from the church in big chunks, here, there, and everywhere. And the Church of England is, is uh, feeling this pressure. And uh, Tyndale comes out. He makes this argument about the king should be the head of the church. You know, in Europe to this day, it's still that way. There's an official state church of England. It's the Anglican church. There's an official state church in Sweden. There's an official state church in Norway. There's an official state church in Denmark. I'm not sure how far it goes, but this is all part of this period where they decided that based on Tyndale and other thinking that the king should have the final say 
over, over the church, which we look at and think is horrific uh, because how can one guy control the whole church? But you have to remember, at that time, that was radical because the whole world was controlled by Rome and the Pope. And they finally said, well, we need to break this up and then each king will do it. So that's pretty radical. Uh, and then, of course, to this day, we look at that and think it's all a little nuts. Um, uh, the problem is, this is not uh, without bloodshed. It gets pretty bad. They are burning people at the stake. Even Calvin, one of his great sins, took some guy who disagreed with him, tied him to a stake, and burnt him in public. I mean, what the heck? These are supposed to be Christian men and women. Uh, they are doing this. Uh, if you read, if you watch a documentary on the Lutheran church, uh, you see how the Catholics started killing the Lutherans. And you think, oh, that's just horrible. And it was horrible. But what you don't keep reading until you get to a different documentary is that the Lutherans turned around and killed the Anabaptists <laughs> because they wouldn't go along with infant baptism. Because they were going, there shouldn't be that. So they killed them. They would kill people all the time. And it was just crazy. So you got uh, the uh, Edward VIII. Is that right? No, Henry, Henry VIII. Okay. And then after Henry comes along um, Edward VI, he's a Calvinist. So all of a sudden they take a swing towards Calvinism. And of course, people are dying one way or the other as they're fighting different heretics, they call them. Um, then under Mary I, the next one, she's the queen of England. Now she's a Catholic, Roman Catholic. And they start persecuting the Protestants. People are running for cover constantly, depending on who's in power here. Then in 1559, Elizabeth I took the throne. And during her 44-year uh, reign, uh, it was more of the, an Anglican thing, kind of like what we have today, Protestant. And of course, then they killed Catholics. <laughs> it's, just, it's horrible. You know what happens then? A whole bunch of people get on boats and they come where? Here. Why? Because this is getting out of control. You couldn't just worship God the way you wanted to worship God without threat of your life. And so many people are being killed and tortured, their heads cut off, burned at the stake over these political, religious differences. And a lot of them just said, we're out of here. And uh, the first group out of England actually were called the Puritans. And they came and landed at Plymouth Rock, right? I got that right? Uh, and uh, and the, eventually the establishment of this country. So anyway, it's, it's, a, it's a, just a big, fat, sad, ugly mess that happens um, how long should I go? Do I need to shut up now? Are they expecting the kids to get out now? Five minutes? Takes me five minutes just to say hello. Um, what do we want to talk about? What happens next? Uh, the, the, uh, the Anglican church that takes over in um, England at this time really becomes the dominating Protestant church. A lot of us can trace back our thinking, uh, traditions and stuff to the Anglican. We are not Anglicans, but to the Anglican church. Then they came to America as well. They don't call themselves an America, uh, Anglicans. You know what they call themselves? Anybody? History? Episcopalians. Why? Because in America, we just had a war shooting a bunch of British people. <laughs> We don't want the Church of England over here. <laughs> so they changed their name. We're not Anglicans. We're Episcopalians. All right? So that's uh, 
so they're still here, the, the uh, American version of it. Um, the, uh, what happens next is you've got in, uh, oh, oh, so 1611, that's the next big thing. Yeah, King James. Guess what he's known for? The King James Bible. And this is a major point now. And the King James Bible now, it's gone. The King James original, I mean, it's gone through a lot of uh, uh, revisions. Thank you. I used to speak English. Um, uh, but it's still fundamentally the same thing. It started by King James. This has been the dominant version of Scripture in America for low these many, many years. Not so much anymore, thank God. You still have people. I was reading one guy online today. I mean, some, they just still argue. If you're not using the King James Bible, you're not really reading the Bible. They're all a little nuts as far as I'm concerned. You know, they, but they so are into, you know, that's with all of these and the thous. We'll still quote it from time to time. Me, personally, I grew up with the King James Bible. I know all, all of my scriptures that I have in this little Puerto Rican brain are King James verses. When I'm preparing for a sermon, I can't find the verse if I don't switch over to the King James Bible. As soon as I put in the King James Bible, I top it up, and up it comes, and, uh, and then I turn it to a more modern version, and that's what I show you. <laughs> but that's, I learned it. I memorized huge portions of it. Uh, one, one book in the Bible I memorized from beginning to end, the book of James. I could quote it from the very, very first verse to the last verse, not make a mistake, nonstop, all in the King James Bible. Uh, there's a verse in the King James, in the book of James, that talks about putting away uh, superfluity of naughtiness. You know, well, nobody talks like that today, you know, but I know what it means because I read that, so I've got to type in superfluity of naughtiness and it pops up. Oh, there's that verse and we share uh, the verse that we know today. Um, a lot of really hardcore uh, Pentecostals or Baptists still hang on to the King James Bible. And if you're not reading, Paul and Silas use the King James Bible. No, we didn't. <laughs> but they are intense. Uh, but it has a major impact. Now, people everywhere, because even Tyndale's is still a little difficult to read, now they're reading it, and again, it has been the predominant uh, thing of all this time. Uh, and then 1729, as we wrap this up, then you have the Methodist Church formed. John Wesley comes. I'd love to spend time maybe when we come back in the fall wrapping this up, talk about the Methodists and Wesley. Wesley also did not want to break away from the Church of England. He wanted to reform it. He felt they had lost their passion, uh, which is true. You know, the thing of spiritual matters is it starts out in a flame, but if you don't pay attention, the flame will go out. People lose their passion, and it becomes about other things. That's what happened to Christianity in general, and that even for individual churches. Uh, 1845, this is a biggie. The Southern Baptist Church was formed. Uh, today, there's probably 60 versions of Baptists all over the world, and not one of them can stand the other. Uh, Lutherans, actually, they're the same thing. There's a whole bunch of different versions of Lutherans. They don't like each other at all. I've done things for Lutheran church. If I'm speaking for a Lutheran group with a bunch of pastors present, I'm not allowed to pray. Because if this 
Lutheran Synod guy prays with us, the Lutheran Synod guy, the world's going to explode. So they don't do it. So they won't even pray together. I mean, they, you know, these differences start going crazy. In, and, and the Southern Baptist Church is huge. The Southern Baptist Church in America is still the largest uh, uh, Protestant denomination in America. I don't know if they are the world or not. Who knows? I don't know. Um, Pentecostal Church, 1969. This is when the Pentecostals came along. And they, everybody just kept breaking off, breaking off, splintering, splintering. Uh, and then you can put, by the year 2005, there are over 20,000 different Christian denominations. Uh, I heard a bunch, when we were in Mexico, uh, Bishop Sean mentioned the number, it was a lot higher. I can't remember what he said, but it's, was that 40,000 now? 40,000 different denominations. We can't have anything to do with you. Only we have the... Because what happens now is because of sola scriptura, which is a good, good principle, uh, when you don't take any of history into play, uh, then everybody becomes an expert to themselves. And... Uh, if you've never had, I posted this on Facebook the other day, if you've never had a theological training or never been able to afford a theological uh, education, just make a comment on Facebook and you'll get lectures all day long. Everybody now is a theologian. And everybody has their, you know, man, they just go off nonstop. And this has happened. So the church is really... The, if it's 40,000, I mean, even 20, it's horrible. This is just bad. Uh, but an, there's something that's happening. It started in the 60s. Uh, they call it ecumenicalism, but, but the, the ecumenical movement, some of it was like really leftist stuff. But a lot of it was just, let, can we get past some of these differences? And so there's still an effort. Um, what's interesting about worship today uh, the Pentecostals won. All right. Or the charismatic. You can say the charismatics are, are like watered down Pentecostals. They're not quite as crazy. Pentecostals can be really intense. But when I was growing up in the 60s and 70s, you went to a Lutheran church, you went to a Baptist church, you went to a Pentecost. Every service was dramatically different. You, there was nothing that was the same. The music, they had their own style. Everybody had their thing. Uh, the only ones who were really super energetic were the uh, Pentecostals and Charismatics. Uh, and I love to say, in the worship battle, uh, the Pentecostals won. Because you can go to any church anywhere, and they're all singing like we say tonight. This is all Charismatic. Clapping and singing, raising your hands, and very cool. Uh, you know, uh, I'll never forget the first time I went to a Baptist church, and they were singing like this. I was stunned. You know, they had two Germans up on stage. They're rocking it out for Jesus. I think, where am I? You know, but it's, it's like that has become the problem. So in a way now, we're starting to look and sound more like each other. Uh, kind of cool. Um, not nearly as much arguments over doctrine as we used to be. Uh, now that you've got the convergent movement, which is what we're basically part of, where we're taking elements of, of the uh, evangelical church and the charismatic church and the liturgical church, historical church, and we're kind of blending them all together. And hopefully we feel that brings more balance. 
uh, to our approach to this. But anyway, it's, it's really, really interesting. I'll stop there and uh, see if we want to come back and talk more about this in the fall or not. Anyway, that is it. That's kind of where, how we got to where we are. Uh, there's still a big difference between Roman Catholics and Protestants. Uh, that's a big gulf. I don't know how they, but God can do anything. But to change from all of this to just faith in Christ is a big step for them. But there are more and more Roman Catholics, actually, who do do this. They still acknowledge some of these things. Uh, but then they double down. Do this real quick. Squeeze us in. I'm in charge. What are you going to do? Fire me? Um, now it'll take too long. <laughs> All right. Talk about it maybe in the fall. All right. I'm done. God bless you. See you later. Bye.